Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing song for the dreaming of the world that we may I'm very, very pleased to welcome back to Spirit in Action a fine writer, humorist, and a gentle theologian, Philip Gully. He's from small town Indiana, but he has big, big ideas and a powerful sense of humor to convey them with. I'll tell you a bit more about Phil Gully in a moment, but first, I want to get you in a small-town frame of mind, at least as remembered by Paul Simon, My Little Town. In my little town Believing God keeps his eye on us all. And he used to lean upon me as I pledged allegiance to the wall. Lord, I recall my little town coming home after school, flying my bike. The gates of the factories My mom doing the laundry Hanging out shirts in the dirty breeze And after it rains There's a rainbow And all of the colors are black not that the colors aren't there It's just imagination they lack Everything's the same back In my little town was Paul Simon singing about his little town, which has some overlap with small-town Indiana, as retold by my Spirit in Action guest, Philip Gully. Phil's recounting of his middle American small-town origins are fonder than what we heard from Paul Simon, I think. Phil Gully, however, is on a deep spirit quest to increase grace in this world, and doing it with a lot of gentle humor. 
I think of Philip Gully as Quakerism's answer to Garrison Keillor, and I'd love to see a story off between the two. Phil has already been my guest, but today we'll be talking about the themes and stories in the other 12 books he's written, most notably the series about the fictitious Indiana small town of Harmony. We'll join Philip Gully via the phone at his home in Indiana. Phil, thanks again so much for joining me for another version of Spirit in Action. Good to be with you, Mark. As our listeners maybe know, at your last visit, we covered two of your books that you co-wrote with James Mulholland called If Grace is True and If God is Love. And today I want to talk about your other writings. Which do you like better? the Grace Love series or the rest of them? And, you know, as an author, you're you're allowed to have favorites, aren't you? <laughs> well, that's kind of like asking me who my favorite child is. No, wait a minute. I was going to make a prediction about your favorite child. Well, you can make a prediction, but I will neither affirm or deny it. <laughs> I did notice that one of your son's name is Sam and that the pastor of Harmony Friends Church is Sam. So I thought that was a clue. Well, my other son caught up when it came time to naming the children. I used his middle name. That's why one of the boys is named Levi. I try to work family names in and keep the balance happy. I've just always liked the name Sam. As for which books you like, because I think there's been an evolution over the years in your writing, and I in no way think we should ever deny our roots, but maybe there's a point where you felt you were particularly flowing well. Yeah, yeah, and I would say that that was with the Harmony series. I really enjoyed writing that. It was a lot of fun, and it was, in many ways, a cathartic experience because as a Quaker pastor, there are always tensions in a meeting and in any church, and while the Constitution promises freedom of speech as a practical reality, we know that isn't exactly true, that if you want to stay in relationship with people, that you need to, at times, temper your remarks and leave unspoken things that you would really like to say. And so the Harmony books became my way of laughing at the silliness of fundamentalism and rigid thinking and and narrowness of all kinds. And in that sense, was very cathartic and almost subversively fun. (laughs) I'm going to ask you a fair amount about Harmony because it's really my favorite out of the whole selection, too. But when you started off... The first books that you wrote, I think, were To Everything a Season and Front Porch Tales and Hometown Tales. Talk about how those came about, because the flow that you had with Harmony, it felt like a full masterpiece that you were painting. Those books, while jewels in their own right, had a different approach. Sure, and and I came at them differently. They were kind of accidental. I'd never really intended to be a writer. I was pastoring a small Quaker meeting. It had about 12 people in it. They'd hired me as kind of a last-ditch effort to keep their doors open. They'd fallen on some hard times, and they were persuaded that the key to their rejuvenation would be a monthly newsletter, which I thought was odd and didn't agree with them, but I didn't want to argue. I didn't want to start my pastoral life with them debating that. I thought it'd be a relatively easy matter to crank out a newsletter once a month, and but I'd had not had a good experience with writing in college composition classes. I'd not done well. And so decided, well, if I'm going to do that, I'm going to take a writing class. So started driving over to the Earlham School of Religion, where the writer Tom Mullen taught. I said, Tom, I need to learn how to write. Why don't you teach me? And 
I'd go over there three nights a week, and he worked with me. He's just a really fine, fine man, and and even a better teacher. Just wonderful guy all the way around. And I really began enjoying it. And I noticed after a while that the high points of my month were when I could write the day I would write the newsletter. Ironically, the congregation turned out to be correct. The issues of the newsletter began circulating, and people began showing up. And one morning, Paul Harvey's son came to our meeting house. He was in, visiting in Indianapolis with some friends and had always been curious about a Quaker meeting and what happened behind those walls, and so showed up and signed the guest register. And the little old ladies in the meeting began sending him a copy of the newsletter. And one day, his father was over at his house. They lived next door to each other up near Chicago. Picked it up off the table and read it and said, I like that, and read it that day on the show. A little essay I'd written, and I got a call the next day from a publisher wanting to know if I had any more. And I did, and put them in a shoebox and mailed them away, and that became my first book, Front Porch Tales. So it was pure accident. I mean, I just started out to write for a little Quaker meeting house and ended up writing a book that sold about three-quarters of a million copies. And to have Paul Harvey in there promoting you, that's a voice that goes out to a lot of people. Now, I tend to think of Paul Harvey as being on the conservative side. I did, too. And you go, you spend an hour with the guy, as I've done several times, and I'm moved by his largesse, by his deep concern for people, by his approachability. Every trait that I admire that I consider a liberal trait, a progressive trait, he possesses. He's thoughtful, he's kind, he's inclusive, he's just a good guy, just a really good guy. Well, it's wonderful that he gave you that promotion. Now, I think that in that day, I think maybe your writings were not necessarily perceived as liberal. They were maybe forward-thinking, they're putting words, using new situations. You talk about hometown-type things, but it didn't smack to me, your first book, of the liberal agenda to overthrow the world's <laughs> order. <laughs> well, I tell you what, I grew up in a traditional community, still live in it, Danville, Indiana, right in the middle of the country. It's a very traditional area. But I'm of the opinion, and I tell this often to people, to people in my meeting and to uh, anyone who will listen, that the roots of progressive faith and progressive life that's rooted in the Midwest and communities of farmers, neighbors who knew one another, who looked out for each other, who cared about their kids, who invested in education, who imagined a world and worked for a world where people got along. It's the land of Hubert Humphrey and other great progressive thinkers and leaders. And I'm not willing to cede that to California. I think the Midwest has something to teach the country, and, and I think that is a kind-hearted, progressive faith and worldview. I just wrote what I knew and wrote what I valued and found out later that those were progressive values and it's just kind of the way I was raised. But I think there was somewhere in your life a change of orientation. Certainly it's been an evolution and from our last interview you spoke a fair amount about it and you, you talk about it theologically very clearly in if grace is true and if God is love. But when did that happen to you? Was it already when you were in seminary? Was it after you came out? I mean, how gradual was the process? Well, it was gradual, and it began early on. My parents are the kind of people who always encourage us to think, to not be reactionary, to be gracious. One of my earliest memories is of my father 
asking a man to leave our home when he spoke disparagingly about black people. My father saying, I don't want my children to hear that talk and ask the man to leave. And then I went away to college. I was older. I didn't have any idea what I wanted to do when I graduated from high school, so I worked for five years and had the good fortune of being educated by Franciscans, a Franciscan priest who taught sociology and theology and really urged me to think deeply about the world. And that kind of became a more intentional effort, I think, to reconsider the world and look at reality a little differently. And and that continued in my association with Quakers. Quakers in the Midwest are a curious bunch. Almost all of them are Republican, at least in Indiana, party of Lincoln. Not in Wisconsin, (laughs) So they're politically conservative, but they're socially progressive. And the presidency of George W. Bush really threw them for a loop. I know a lot of them who voted for Obama this time around. And finally they got to the place where they're just going to be sustained. And that place came for me probably in my college years, 20 years ago, as it does for a lot of us. I mean, isn't that why we educate people to expand their worldview? And in your Harmony books, the pastor, Sam, you're... Dale Hinshaw is constantly pointing at him, saying, you know, you shouldn't go away to college because you're going to get corrupted. And it did happen, didn't it? Oh, sure. Gosh, yes. I remember I was pastoring this little Quaker meeting while in college, and they asked me my plans afterwards. And I said, well, I intend to go to seminary. And several of them just moaned and said, oh, that will ruin you. I didn't think so. I thought it made me. But they didn't agree with that. And let's just be clear. I'm Quaker and you're Quaker, but we're part of different strands of the faith. And you're part of Friends United Meeting. You're associated with them. I'm associated with Friends General Conference. We're known as the N Programmed, your program. In generally, I'd say that it's probably true on the average that FGC meetings are more liberal theologically and politically than uh, FUM. But I just heard you say when we were talking earlier that you had to discuss with your wife about going to a bris for some people in your meeting who are Jewish. Now, that seems quite a stretch for an FUM meeting. (laughs) Well, don't let word get out. (laughs) Oh, we've had a wonderful couple who, several years ago, we had a uh, Jewish man come to our meeting with his wife and little son, and he was professor of world religions at... DePaul University, near our meeting, and we welcomed him with open arms. I think part of the appeal, they'd been looking for a church for some time, and part of the appeal was that the Quakers at our meeting insisted and assured him that his faith was fine and that uh, we would not seek to change it, only enhance it by being in relationship with him and expressed our belief that his faith would enhance ours. And that's what's happened. We've learned a lot from him. He's a wonderful, wonderful man now teaches a first-day class for us and biblical knowledge, and we find that there's a lot of people who are biblically illiterate. And so he is helping us with that and just doing a wonderful job. And that fits under the roof with uh, Christian God-fearing people? Well, I tell you, honestly, to be honest, there are probably some Quaker meetings in FUM that would be dismayed by that, who would believe that it was our job to convert him. We don't share that sentiment at Fairfield Meeting. We think it's our job to be in relationship with him and to learn from him what we can and be grateful for it. And, well, as we remind our Jewish attenders, some of our best friends are Jews. 
<laughs> which, of course, as the religious society of friends, makes sense to us. But the, the rest, rest of the people are not in on the joke. It just went over everybody's head, didn't it? <laughs> Let's talk a, a bit about your Harmony series, because I think you do an absolutely wonderful job of conveying a lot about Quakerism, the values of Quakerism. For instance, having learned to refer to Fran Hampton by that name at the Friends Church, and when she's your first grade school teacher, you're supposed to call her Mrs. Hampton, and you wouldn't do the honorifics. <laughs> and got in trouble. <laughs> that actually happened. I was in high school when I began attending Quaker meeting, and one of the first things I learned, I called the pastor, Reverend. They said, oh, no. Oh, no, we don't use titles. He told me his first name and his last name. and shook my hand, and he said, and that goes for everyone here. You are to call us by our first names, and if you want to pay special tribute, you can use the last name also. And so after that, I knew him as Jim Taylor instead of Pastor Taylor. So one of, the, one of my teachers was a Quaker, and I went to school that next day and saw her walking down the hall, and called out her full name, was told that that was not acceptable at school. <laughs> That's interesting. I've always wondered how one deals with that, because this radical Quaker belief in egalitarianism, all equal before God, I've had an issue with it because I speak French. I was a Peace Corps volunteer in West Africa in a French-speaking country. And in French, they still preserve the plural and singular forms of you, including the formal you that you use for important people, like the you in English used to be, as opposed to the the, which was the informal. And early Quakers treated everybody as the. And so I do that in French, including when I'm talking to honchos. And they they can kind of forgive me because I'm a foreign speaker and they think I might not know the difference. But, in fact, it's a point. <laughs> That's right, and it's an important point and one we've forgotten and one that I think the world would do well to remember, that we are all equal. And let's recognize that with our language and not only with our language but with our conduct. Speaking of conduct, have you ever had to go before a judge and say, your honor? I thought that would put a, a real Quaker in a pickle. Yeah. In fact, I have three judges in my meeting. One is retired as the Supreme Court Justice of the state of Indiana. He was the chief justice for years. And then two other current sitting judges. And I've never referred to them as judge. When I first met the chief justice, he stuck out his hand and said, call me Dick. And from what I understand, that was his practice, that he did not want Titles used as a Quaker and made that very clear. Delightful old man. He's in very poor health now and near the end of his life, but such an egalitarian spirit. And that's why I became a Quaker, because I met people like that and thought, I want to be like that. As opposed to just because you wanted to associate with those pretty young Quaker lasses. Well, there was that, too. <laughs> I was 16 after all. Tell me about the mix, and I don't really want to get you into big trouble here, but in your Harmony books, two of the fall guys for some of your frustrations are Dale Hinshaw and Fran Hampton. 
they're the bad guys, the conservatives, and not even conservative, they're something else. I I assume you've had a certain percentage of them in Quaker meetings because Quaker meetings are a mixture of all people. Did you have really bad frustrations to deal with? <laughs> I have had. My current meeting where I've been for 10 years is just an incredible group of people. We seem to be blessedly scarce on small-minded folks. But yes, when I first began pastoring, I had a few congregations who really tested my sense of whether or not I wanted to commit my life to this. And consequently, I tended not to last too long. I lasted four years in one congregation and three weeks in the other. I tend not to like to, I don't know if this is snobbery, I'd like to think it isn't, but there are places that I don't find affirming, life-affirming, and I tend not to stick around them. I've been lucky in my life as a Quaker minister that uh, the bulk of my experiences have been very positive, but I've had a few kind of dysfunctional communities that were difficult, and they were difficult because they had people like Fern Hampton and Dale Henshaw in them, just very rigid people who couldn't compromise at all. We have to be a little careful here because those names, Hinshaw and Hampton, are very widely known Quaker names. It's entire Quaker families, just like Penn or Fox. or. Yeah, I've used those names intensely. And you also have in your book uh, Miriam Hodge. Of course, she embodies some of the most Quakerly of the people we've met. And I assume your current meeting is filled with Miriams? Uh, we have a lot of Miriams. We're very fortunate. I think something like that is almost contagious, though. I think when you get one or two in there, they have such a good effect on the others that others look at them and say, I want to be like them. And they begin to change the way they live, the way they relate. I think that's the power of example. Talk a little bit, if you will, because I'm assuming, Phil, that as your perspective has changed over the years, how you feel as a pastor in a friend's church. Now, again, I come from unprogrammed. We don't have a, a pastor, but you've evolved over the years. Is it okay still for you to be a pastor? Well, certainly my understanding of that role has changed. When I first began, I imagined that my job would be uh, as leader and administrator and that most of the life of the church would emanate from my office. And I persisted in that model for probably 12 years or so and ended that period exhausted, inwardly and outwardly drained, and took a year off and began thinking, if I were to continue this, what did I need to change about how I approached life as a pastor among friends, and discerned that my role and my understanding of my role was going to have to shift dramatically, spend a significant amount of time in, in that year thinking what that might look like, and only when I was fairly confident that I could do that, began accepting uh, and having conversations with meetings about coming and being with them in a role that was more uh, alongside than over, in a role that was very limited. Consequently, I've been doing that for 10 years, and instead of feeling worn out and anxious, feel creative and energetic about the enterprise and really find it much more healthy for the meeting and for myself. And the meeting seems be better for it. In my other meetings, a lot of their functioning depended on my functioning. In my current meeting, I take a lot of time off. I have a week off every month, and I take the summer off generally, and my meeting just flies right along without me. If I'm not mistaken, I think that you essentially describe that autobiographically, if you will, 
in just shy of harmony, your loss of faith, your exhaustion, your depression, that period, that was an attempt to capture what you went through? Yeah, that's autobiographical. Yeah. I wrote that book on the heels of that experience and thought, boy. And it affects everything, of course, when you're exhausted and when you burn out. It affects every aspect of your life, and most especially, I think, your spirituality. And I got to a point when I thought I was really a, a functional atheist. I could say things, but I didn't believe them and didn't sense the power of any of it or the meaning of it. But I wouldn't trade that. I think that was a valuable experience, and I think it was probably a necessary step in my journey. So... I don't look back on that as a time of being lost. I look at it as a rich experience in which I learned a great deal. In the book, when you write about that, Phil, you describe the fact that first you're hiding it and only talking about it with your wife, but eventually you end up talking about it with the elders and it gets out to everyone. Did your functional atheism, as you describe it, did that go out to the wider community? Did you get shunned? Did uh, Dale Hinshaw or his clones stand up and say, down with you, you're not godly enough for us? Yes, I've always made it a practice. I always thought if I didn't know quite how to be a minister, one thing I did suspect about it is that I should always be honest with people about my own spiritual journey. And so early on in this process, I began talking about it very openly, very publicly, and I think that might have been what saved me because so many people came up and said, you know, I've thought the same thing. I've had the same struggles. I know people who lie about their spiritual lives, but I don't know any person who's honest and thoughtful who won't confess to having periods, phases, sometimes lengthy in their lives when they don't believe in God or they have at the very least very significant doubts. I think it's appropriate to say that right out front and let that be known. Uh, I was fortunate when I did that from the pulpit at my meeting. I, I had uh, no one judge me for that. At least they didn't do my face. They might have said something, you know, then what the heck's he doing being our minister? But they never said it to my face. So it was received with much graciousness and affection and, and even humor. And that, I think, was instrumental in my being able to deal with it. In the book... Home to Harmony, which is, I think, the first of your Harmony series. I read that before I read If Grace is True. I assume one came out before the other. It's only on rereading it recently that I realized that you were talking very specifically right at the beginning, in particular, about the theme of If Grace is True. Oh, that's what's so funny about that book. is That book came out and right out of the gate sold 80,000 copies in the Christian market, Home to Harmony, within just a few short weeks. It just sold really well. And when it was still doing really well, I told my publisher, which was a Christian publisher, that I wanted to write If Grace is True, a theology book. And they said, well, we can't do that because we don't agree with their philosophy. And that's how I lost them as a publisher. I got fired, essentially. But I thought it was hysterical because I talked about the same things in Home to Harmony, I just did a novel instead of a theology book. And has your market shifted? Are the Christians still reading what you're writing, or have they gone away from you too much? I'm thinking that the first books, Front Porch Tales and, and the like, those were easily palatable, but as you became more explicit about dealing with your wider theology, 
uh, your evolving theology, that maybe your listenership has changed? Oh, it's shifted a bit. But, you know, I think the people to whom orthodoxy matters a great deal, and these are the gatekeepers in the evangelical community, the handful of people who want to determine what the rest of us can and must think. I don't think the average person has quite the same fascination with orthodoxy. I think they like a good read. I don't think they want to read anything that's degrading, where people are degraded, but I think they're willing to try on a more expansive theology. And I told my publisher that, and they let me go. I said, it's so short-sighted. I said, you so underestimate the nature of the average reader. You presume to a narrowness that they simply don't have. And I was right. The book sales continued to do well, and largely by the same folks who'd always bought them. Happily, as I became a bit more explicit about my progressive worldview, um, more progressive folks began to read them too. But even to this day, my readership is pretty pretty wide. I think I'm personally responsible for some of your high sales of Home to Harmony. <laughs> Thank you. I come from a large family. I decided that I wanted to share this with some of the span of belief that's in my family. There's 12 of us in the family. So I, not only did I buy the hardcover, but I bought five copies of the paperback. So I want to let you know I'm in your listenership there. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not sure I led anyone else to see theology different, but I think they probably got some very good laughs out of it. And that's the fun thing about the Harmony books. Just in yesterday's mail, I got a letter from a... Southern Baptist woman whose letter began, Praise the Lord, and was clear from the tone of her letter that she was an evangelical Christian and that she uh, had a worldview that, as a progressive Quaker, you probably don't share, you know, right down the line, and yet the books are able to span that spectrum. And I'm glad for that. I want that to happen. Well, one of the things that you do in the books that make that easier you make fun of, you look at the lighter side of, you help lighten the shortcomings of both sides. And include Sam Gardner, the person who I think is you in the book, you look tongue-in-cheeks about him doing it, going to the baseball game on the way to the Choctaw Indians. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, Sam, yeah, he's such a wimp, isn't he? <laughs> And I think that there's part of that that does not resemble you. I tend to think you're not much of a wimp, huh? <laughs> no, I've, um, I can be a real wimp sometimes. I don't like confrontation, and sometimes I will concede a bit too much to avoid strife. That may be the quicker pacifism in me, but yeah, when the rubber meets the road, I tend to say, okay, you know, here's what I can do in good conscience, and here's what I'm not willing to do, and most people generally respect that. If you just tuned in, we're speaking with Philip Gully. Phil is the author of 14 books, and I believe there's a 15th one coming out this year. He's co-author of a couple very important theological treaties, I would call them. They're very personal. They're not high-minded. One of them is called If Grace is True, and the other is If God is Love, and he co-authored them with James Mulholland. And his Harmony books are the ones that are nearest and dearest to my heart. And my heart is the heart of Mark Helpsmeet. I'm part of Northern Spirit Radio, and we have a website, northernspiritradio.org, and you can hear all of our programs there, and you can leave comments. And I'd really appreciate it if you took the time to do that. So go to Northern Spirit Radio. 
www.ncpodcast.org. And please leave us a comment about people like our fine guest for today's Spirit in Action, Phil Gully. Uh, Phil, at the same time that you're doing tongue-in-cheek about a whole number of issues, you deal with really important, crucial themes. And some of them are not the popular central ones. I mean, you mentioned global warming here and there, but uh, you give a fair amount of attention to lottery, for instance. (laughs) I hope that no Quaker church you were part of ever actually gave (laughs) out the lottery tickets. No, although I did have a church contact me once, not a friend's meeting, asking permission to use that idea for an effort to bring people in. Really? I said I did not own that idea, but that I strongly discouraged them from doing it. <laughs> That's one of the things. I'm part of a Quaker meeting, which is considered this liberal edge, and uh, we'd feel very much in unity with the fact that we shouldn't be encouraging gambling, and particularly by the government, all the more so. Oh, gosh, it's abysmal. It's terrible. It's absolutely terrible, what the government's participation in this addiction. It's just terrible. It is nothing short of preying on the weakest people in our society, doing them a huge disjustice. I think it's terrible. I've heard the lottery referred to as a tax on those who are mathematically challenged. <laughs> and a tax on the poor who, who really believe the advertisements that the lottery will change their life and that they have a good chance of winning it. There just aren't enough words in my vocabulary to describe how I detest the lottery and especially the government's participation in it. It's, it's terrible. You also talk about drinking in there and the scene where you're watching the baseball game and it gets back to, when I say you, I mean Sam, of course. When Sam is there and the photos get back and they're supposed to be off taking money to a mission... Instead, there they are holding glasses of beer at the baseball game. Would you get in trouble if people saw you out in public with a glass of beer in your hand, even if you weren't supposed to be off going to the Choctaw Indians? Oh, I'm, I suppose some people would look down their, their nose at that and, and be concerned about that. But I'm, I wouldn't be in the trouble I'd be in if I were, say, a Southern Baptist. I think Quakers... I wouldn't be in trouble at all if it were a glass of wine. I might. People might talk about me behind my back if it were a beer, but I don't drink at all. So I come from a family with a history of alcoholism, so I stayed away from it. You know, I've got the same experience in my family. That is to say, a lot of alcoholism, brothers, sisters, parents, and on back. How common is it in the Friends' churches, the branch of Quakerism you're in, how common is it to completely abstain as opposed to simple moderation? You know, what I notice more is an emphasis on moderation. I don't hear a lot of people getting excited about abstaining altogether. I do hear counsel about moderation, but I hear the same counsel of moderation when it comes to eating and and everything else and work, you know, be wise and use it with good judgment if you're going to use it. I seldom hear a wholesale condemnation of alcohol. If anyone were to do that, it would probably be me because I suspect that, that most alcoholics started moderately, <laughs> you know, started 
drinking and doing that in kind of a modest way, and it and it grew on them. But you know, I I realized that I'm affected by my own personal experience with it. My father's an alcoholic, who is recovered, but I saw that unfold in his life and and the pain that that caused our family. And and he was a very high functioning alcoholic. I mean, he wasn't beaten us and he didn't lose his job, but then again, a person who's just a wonderful man. I saw alcohol really diminish his life there for several years, and, and it almost made me a fundamentalist about alcohol. I just advised my sons not even to go down that road because of our family history with it, and several cousins who've really struggled with that, so I worry that our family does have a genetic predisposition toward that. So, Well, I think you do a masterful job in some of the Harmony books on dealing with that. Uh, the idea that you're going to have an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting at the Harmony Friends meeting, then um, in comes, uh, I forgot his name now, but the, he, he, he comes in and with a military mind uh, organizes the, uh, the Alcoholic, uh, Alcoholic Anonymous group. Along the lines of a military camp. <laughs> well, there is a certain discipline to AA, my father's in it now, and he's, it's like he found religion late in life. He's become an enthusiastic supporter of AA, which is great. I'm glad. I'd rather him do that than drink. But it does almost have a military connotations to it. Very disciplined. You talk about peace from time to time, and as you've said already, Phil, you're a pacifist. In the FUM Quaker circles you have, that is, I assume, the predominant thought, belief, orientation? You know, I'd say one time, yeah. And I would say this, that corporately, anytime we do any kind of corporate statements or corporate activity, that pacifism is the standard. It has been of great concern to me that in many Quaker meetings, particularly pastoral Quaker meetings, those Quaker meetings that tend to be a bit more conservative, that civil religion has crept in and that many Quakers no longer feel a belief in pacifism to be essential to their faith. I don't understand that, but I also realized that my instinct to say to them, you must be this way, is no different than some of them saying to me that I must believe the Bible is the inerrant word of God. I don't like being told that I must, and I'm not inclined to tell them they must, though I sure wish they would. <laughs> but I think for... Uh, those Quakers, I think probably the great undoing, well, and historically we know this, of course, was the Civil War, and then World War II kind of undid pacifism for many Quakers. Because those were wars that seemed to have a moral value that we had to support at the same time we were opposing the moral ill of war? Yeah, I think so. I think uh, for a lot of Quakers, that was the limit. One thought that came to me as I was reading through your books, including some of them which are nonfiction, like Porch Talk. Porch Talk is at least nominally nonfiction. I, th I think it's autobiographical without fictitious names in there. Yeah, collection of essays, yeah. Yeah, but from time to time, I suspect you're going beyond the strict limits of the truth. Is that fair to say? <laughs> oh, that's probably fair to say. 
There is a Quaker almost obsession at certain times in the past in speaking exactly and only the truth. And those kind of fishing stories that you tell uh, where things get exaggerated, have you ever been reproved or brought under the care of the meeting for telling fishing stories? Not yet. And I think part of the way I get around that is just to not confess to a moral rigidity here or a honing the moral line. You know, I freely admit that in some of my writings I use exaggeration for humorous effect, and and I hope it works. I mean, I hope people can read it and tell when I'm when I'm joking and when I'm not. I think the most recent book that I have is Porch Talk. Is that true that that's the most recent one that's come out? Recent one. And this is a number of essays that you've written. Uh-huh. What is the purpose of this book as opposed to the Harmony series? How has the purpose of this book changed from your earlier books? Well, the next book that's coming out is more memoir in style. It had its roots in a conversation with my publisher one day. He called on a day my parents, on a week that my parents were moving from the childhood home where I'd grown up and where they'd lived for many, many years, and into a smaller home. Their help no longer permitted them to stay in that house. It was a, it was a huge house on a big tract of land in town, so you just couldn't let the lawn grow up, and it became too cumbersome for them to maintain. So they decided to move, and since I still live here in the town, a lot of the work in helping them move fell to me, which I was happy to do. I'm very close with my parents. But I came home one evening, and my publisher called to talk about another matter and asked me what I'd been doing, and I told him, uh, you know, about my parents moving, and he said, tell me about that house. And I did, and he said, oh, gosh, that sounds like a wonderful place to grow up. And I said, it was. I said, I had just had a wonderful childhood in that house. And he said, why don't you write about it? And I did. They end up changing the title. Publishers do that a lot. You know, they don't write the books, but they want their handprint on them somewhere. So they always change titles. They're sneaky that way. This house was on a street called Broadway Street, and the book was going to be called My Life on Broadway. But they said that didn't work and changed it to another title named after my sixth-grade teacher who I had a crush on. And the name of the book is I Love You, Miss Huddleston and other inappropriate longings of my Indiana childhood. So that's the name of the book. And it comes out, I think, hits the stores on April 14th, 2009. And I assume they're going to be able to find this book on Amazon or anywhere else that they search for you. But, of course, you have your own website. Yep, sure do. They can either go to philipgullybooks.com or philipgully.org if they want to subscribe to weekly messages. We always post in PDF form the uh, messages I bring at Fairfield Friends Meeting. And so people can go on that and sign up to receive those each week for free. Do you ever record these or do you only write them, print them? I only write and print them. That will probably be changing. We're in the process of building a new meeting house. And when that happens, we will have some technology that we don't have yet. Our meeting house is very old, and it was built in 1892, and it's a lovely old place, and we intend to keep it, but it's no longer sufficient for our needs. It isn't large enough, and it uses way too much energy, and we have quite a bit of land uh, because we've been on our corner since 1826, so we've raised money for 
new meeting house, and we'll hopefully be breaking ground on that this summer. That sounds exciting. And so you're going to put in a recording service there? Yeah, and our hope is to uh, actually record the whole meeting for worship. One of the things that we would like to do is have microphones around the meeting room so that as people stand to speak out of the uh, waiting worship, that we'll be able to hear because what we've noticed was uh, that we baby boomers with our penchant for rock music are kind of hard of hearing now. So if we can hear one another through the use of technology, that that's something we need to do. That rock music will do that to you, won't it? <laughs> it will. I wanted to check, just a, this is an odd little thread of something that came to me. In one of your books I'm reading, and you're referring to Uli Grant, descended five generations back from Ulysses S. Grant. Now, I know, obviously, the person you're speaking of in the book is fictitious, but Ulysses S. Grant, obviously, is real, and he was an alcoholic, and you refer to that in the book, but then you refer to his son marrying a Quaker. Now, is that one true? I haven't checked that one out. His son did marry a Quaker. And gave up the military? I don't know. I don't know much about it after that, but, I, but I'm almost certain that one of his sons married a Quaker. And then that's where the, the truth ends in the, in the book. Then I just kind of make up the history. This gets back to the issue of pacifism for Quakers. Uh, I was talking with Tom Hamm not long ago, who's the archivist and professor of history at Earlham College in Richmond. And he had mentioned to me that at one time, and I had heard this before, that just as many Quakers from Indiana participated in the Civil War as did not. So that is, among the age-eligible Quaker men, half of them had military service in the Civil War. And so that would not have been unusual for someone like Grant to marry a Quaker woman because there were Quakers whose sentiments lay that way. And obviously some people have seen The Friendly Persuasion, the, the movie version of it, and they know the conflict that goes on there. And one of the precious little gems that I heard about was that movie was presented on video to Mikhail Gorbachev by Ronald Reagan, along with the statement that this is one of his favorite movies, and he specifically cited the line where Sam, the neighbor of the Quaker family, tells the Quaker family to stay at home, not take his gun, go out. He says, we need someone holding out for a better way of doing things. And the thought that Ronald Reagan, who most of us have identified with pro-war, I'm afraid, presented that to Gorbachev, speaking about holding out for a better way of solving things, was truly an inspiration moment for me, and it helps me see across uh, these partisan differences. Yes, yeah, that's right. That's right. I love that line. It's been so long since I'd seen that movie, I'd forgotten it. Yeah. Now you have some material for your next book. Well, I'm going to use that right now. I'm writing a book called It the Church of Christian. And one of the chapters is it would care more about peace than power. And I talk about really what I perceive to be almost the wholesale abandonment of peace by the Christian church in America and why that must change. And again, listeners, I want to remind you that you can find out about Phil Gully's books by going to his site, philipgully.org or philipgullybooks.com. But you can also find easily by tuning in to my website, 
northernspiritradio.org, and I'll have a link to his website in case especially you can't spell Philip, and I think it's usually spelled about five different ways, right? P-H-I-L-I-P. There was one more thing I wanted to ask, Phil, and is it possible for you, Phil, to read a passage or a little portion to us, give us a taste treat of I Love You, Miss Huddleston, one that's coming out in just a couple months? Sure. Uh, actually, I'll just start at the beginning. This is uh, from the first chapter, and it's a title called My Perilous Start. When I was four months old, a few days after a photographer had taken my baby picture, my father lost his job. When the photographer returned bearing the proofs for my parents to choose from, they could no longer afford the photos. The man took pity and gave them a proof for free, which my parents displayed on our living room wall alongside pictures of my siblings. I wore black pants and a white shirt with blue stripes. My right hand was extended in a posture of blessing. A beatific smile lay upon my features. Purple ink etched the word proof on my forehead. Adding to this indignity, I was afflicted with cradle cap, which in combination with the stray shadow gave me the appearance of wearing a yarmulke. I looked like a miniature rabbi whom the Lord in that fickle way of the divine had placed among the Gentiles. Like my brothers and sisters, I was baptized Catholic, though I now believe that was done to throw me off. <laughs> a great start to it, yes. Is there anything else you'd like to highlight or have highlighted? Yeah, just to invite listeners to go to philipgully.org and check that site out. A lady in my meeting who is a computer whiz set that up, and it is a good way to kind of disseminate, we hope, the Quaker message. It includes weekly messages that can land in your inbox for free. I urge people to read them and pass them out, think about them, argue back, add to them, really join the conversation. It's been a great conversation having you here again, Phil. Listeners, remember that this is my second interview with Philip Gully, and you can look through my Spirit in Action programs and find the first one where we discuss primarily if grace is true and if God is love. But any of his books is a delight, thought-provoking, and you'll get a good laugh out of it, too, and there's no shortage of need for humor in this world. So thank you so much, Phil, again for joining us here for Spirit in Action. Thank you for having me. That was Philip Gully, author of 14 books, going on 15 this spring. And I'd like to leave you with a song as a reminder of his book, If Grace is True. The song is Amazing Grace, and we're going to join a well-known singer with strong Quaker roots, Joan Baez, on stage, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound Save a wretch like me that say a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was lost, but now. 
was grace that taught my heart to fear. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear!
The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.